You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is author, historian, law professor, Joel Richard Paul. He is a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings in San Francisco. He has written several books. We are going to discuss his latest one, which is Indivisible. It's a story about the founding after the founding, if I can say it that way. Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. Professor Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're welcome. As we were talking before we got rolling, your book is a fun read. It documents an underrated aspect or period in American history. The Wall Street Journal called it a tour de force of compact narrative. And James McPherson, who's probably the greatest living Civil War author, or at least he's on the Mount Rushmore for sure, he called it a remarkable story of Daniel Webster, a towering American whose hypnotic oratory in the 19th century helped to define the character of the American nation, a stirring and monumental achievement. That, excuse me, is by Congressman Jamie Raskin. McPherson said, Joel Richard Paul shows how Webster's oratorical brilliance helped to define the meaning of the Union in the antebellum era. There's so many great quotes. I got them all confused. We'll come back to some of them. When you undertake to write a book like this, in which there always seems to be something new to add or a different view to espouse, how do you tackle the research? aspect of it to build a coherent case, the thesis for your book? That's a great question. One of my models, Gene Edward Smith, who Smith. Yeah. great, great uh, biography of John Marshall and a great biography of uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Eisenhower. He told me once that, that the way you write a book like this is you write about what happened on Tuesday, and then you write about what happened on Wednesday. And you write about, by the time you get to Friday, you've forgotten what you wrote about Tuesday. And <clears throat> that's my approach. I, it, there's just, there's so many characters in my book, and there's so much history between 1812 and 1852 that I write about in the book, that it's really hard to to grasp it all at once. And it's an organic process where my own thinking about the contributions of these men changes as I learn more about them and understand more about the interactions between various people and not just the sort of the great men of the time, but also the social movements and the political relations between different countries at the time, and even 
the ways in which the climate affected the the politics and the economy of the era. Did this generation of Americans have any sort of inferiority complex? In other words, we're talking about the generation after what I believe to be the greatest generation, and that's the Revolutionary War of Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, James Madison, James Monroe, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and the list goes on and on, right? And so now we th- they're all dying out or have died way before Franklin and Washington died in the 18th century. Did these fellows think, how are we going to live up to the promises and the work and the sacrifice of the previous generation of giants? That is a great way to put it. I, I think they did have a kind of inferiority complex. So much of what they talked about was really trying to associate themselves with those giants, our founding fathers, and to try to somehow take the, the sort of the present dilemmas that they were facing, the political problems that they were wrestling with, and try to put them in the context of the revolutionary generation. When Lafayette, the great French general who really, more than anyone, was one of the great military leaders of the Revolutionary War, when when Lafayette comes back 50 years after the the Battle of of, uh, Bunker Hill, he is is swamped with well-wishers. He goes up the coast of the United States, and everywhere he goes, crowds larger than anyone had ever seen in America welcome him because he represents a kind of a touchstone, a, a, a link back to Washington. He was known to be sort of Washington's adopted son. And the the enthusiasm that, that Lafayette could generate, because people at that time understood that the American Revolution was not won by America alone. It was won by America and our French allies, that it was really without France and without the generals that France provided us with, the military leadership and the support that they gave us and the logistics they gave us, we would not have been able to defeat the British. And the Navy. It's the Navy that wins the Battle of the Capes in, I think, September of 1781, and that traps Cornwallis's army at Yorktown. And if Cornwallis can get away, the war doesn't end, or it certainly doesn't end when it does, and it probably would have ended different. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it's really the French who won that battle. And Washington gets the credit because Washington was really such a, an, an inspirational leader. His character is what helped to bring the country together at that moment in time to fight the war. But he wasn't a great military strategist the way that someone like Lafayette was. At the same time, concomitantly, did this generation of Americans resent the previous generation for not figuring out the end of slavery? I'm not sure that, I don't know if the word resent is the right word. Certainly they recognize the failure that was implicit in the Constitution. And, And certainly among the abolitionists, there was a feeling that the founding fathers had made a fatal mistake. Many of the abolitionists, many people in in, the, in New England, uh, contemplated secession because they really just didn't want it. They wanted to wash their hands of any association with slavery. And it was one of the things that that Daniel Webster did, as the senator from Massachusetts, was to turn to his constituents in New England and say, you don't have clean hands. This is just about Southern slavery. You've all profited from slavery. You profited from the slave trade. You profited from building the ships, from manufacturing the textiles with the cotton that was picked by the slaves. That We're all in this together. We're all implicated in, in the disease of the slave, slavery. You anticipated my next question. A lot of us had heard of Daniel Webster had written about him as maybe part of the great triumvirate of Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, and John C. Calhoun. But you chose Daniel Webster to be mentioned specifically in the subtitle of your book, Indivisible. Why did you choose him? And why did you think he's compelling enough to make him the foundation of your effort? 
Well, as you correctly point out, this is not really a biography of Daniel Webster. This book is really about how we came to define ourselves as Americans, what makes us Americans. The title of my book, Indivisible, is really drawn from this idea that, that people in the founding generation, and even as late as the 1830s, 40s, were still wrestling with the question about what, what makes us Americans. We were really teen, disparate colonies, people who didn't have a lot in common. People lived in Virginia. They were Virginians. They weren't Americans. America was a concept. It was an idea, but it wasn't a reality for most people. And so you have these competing ideas of nationalism that arose at the time. We can talk about what some of those ideas were. And it was really Daniel Webster who managed to define us as Americans by reference to the founding generation and reference to the Constitution and say that what makes us Americans isn't our race, it's not our religion, it's not where we came from, it's not where we live, it is the Constitution that made us all Americans regardless of those things. And, and that idea of constitutional nationalism is what ultimately unifies us as one country. And it, and it, both on the Northern side and the Southern side of the Civil War, it is that idea that made it possible for people to fight uh, and ultimately for the Union to triumph. We'll talk a little bit later here on the podcast about Lincoln's interpretation and thoughts of that and how that influenced him. I just recorded a podcast with Michael Burlingame about Lincoln and slavery, Lincoln and African-Americans, and his book called The Black Man's President is really strong on all the points that you just mentioned. Uh, but we discussed Daniel Webster, we mentioned him, so please give the listeners a little background on this remarkable man who had uh, basically every job in the United States government except janitor and president. You're right. Daniel Webster, for 40 years, was at the center of American political life. He was a member of Congress, first from New Hampshire, later from Massachusetts. He was a senator. He was twice the Secretary of State. Um, he was, I think, without question, the most uh, important Supreme Court advocate of his era, maybe of all time. Uh, he argued a huge number of cases before the Supreme Court and won nearly all of them. He was, he shaped the Marshall Court almost as much as John Marshall did. In fact, many of John Marshall's most famous opinions were lifted from Daniel Webster's briefs. It was Daniel Webster who argued cases that that defined the power of corporations in America, that that broke up the earliest monopolies in the era in, in the field of navigation. He argued for the supremacy of federal power. And his opinions and his, I'm sorry, his arguments before the Supreme Court were really echoed in many cases by the justices themselves. But what makes Daniel Webster such a compelling character, more than anything else, he was acknowledged throughout the world as the single greatest orator of the English language. And I mean that quite literally. Uh, when, when Daniel Webster uh, went on vacation to Britain, he was swamped by well-withers. All of the great intellectuals, political leaders, and royalty of the day wanted to meet this man who they had heard about and whose speeches they had read. Uh, people like Wordsworth and Coleridge and uh, uh, Charles Dickens and uh, Thomas Carlyle, Melbourne, Lord Melbourne, um, um, Queen Victoria herself had to meet this man. Um, and when Queen Victoria invited him for dinner uh, at the palace, uh, the uh, uh, King Louis Philippe in France, um, uh, he insisted that he come to France to have dinner with him because he didn't want to be outdone. And ultimately, uh, Louis Philippe um, commissioned this vast uh, 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 portrait of, of Webster arguing one of his most famous arguments before the uh, Senate of the United States. It's I think it's 30 by 25 feet. And it is part, uh, a portion of it is on the cover of my book, another reason to buy my book. But it's, it is, it's, this, it's this just this sense that this man could speak like Shakespeare could write. 
he had a command of the English language that's extraordinary. And his speeches, which he would give extemporaneously, no notes, he would just stand up and speak for three, four, five, sometimes six hours. And people would be completely mesmerized by his speeches. That was the power that this man had. And his speeches would be transcribed and would be reprinted and distributed all over the United States and Europe. And so everybody who couldn't see him speak live could at least read his speeches. And I, having read many of these speeches, which sometimes run 60 or 70 printed pages, it's exhausting to read it. <laughs> but his presentation itself was so compelling. He had so much poise and eloquence that people just felt transformed by the experience of listening to him. What do you think drove Webster to public service? He could have done, made a fortune as a lawyer, which he obviously he made some money and he had money problems, I believe, throughout his adult life. And he could have done many other things, but what is it about him and his upbringing, his atmosphere that said, I want to serve others? It's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that entirely. I, he was very ambitious. I was going to say, we can always fall back on ambition. <laughs> That's universal. He was a very ambitious man. And he clearly wanted to be president. And he ran for president numerous times and never really got there. I, I think... Uh, he had a kind of inferiority complex, and this is going to strike you as odd, but as a young man, he came from a very modest background, and his father had to mortgage his home in order to send him to school. And he went to Phillips Academy. And as a young man at Phillips Academy, he was expected to stand up and recite before all the other boys. And he froze, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't speak. And he was basically dismissed from the school. And he was determined that he was going to overcome that. And so he had this ambition to become a great orator because of this incident as a child. And so he worked very hard. And by the time he went to Dartmouth College later in life, he, he had made himself a great orator. And he loved, I think, the crowd. He loved the attention. He loved the 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 admiration of people. And so it was a natural outcome of that, that he got swept into politics. And he felt passionately about two things that drove him. And his two most passionate interests were his opposition to slavery on the one hand, and on the other hand, his belief in the importance of preserving the union. And it, ultimately, those two principles come into conflict. You mentioned his ambition on a lot of politicians, people back then at it. Some were consumed by it and some were ruined by it. How did Webster navigate all of these pitfalls while keeping considerable influence over four decades, five decades? I mean, a lot of people back then, they rose and they fall. Aaron Burr is one of them. There's other people we can name. But he never so much, uh, from your book, I got gathered that he never so much as fell as he just couldn't get on the next rung of the ladder. Something was keeping him from that. I, th I think uh, so there's two questions there. I, I think, why did he survive as long as he did, Henry Clay and, and, and John C. Calhoun? I think he was, because of his eloquence, he was seen as the conscience of New England. He was seen as the spokesperson. He, very early on in his career, identified himself with the cause of opposition to slavery. And for many people in the West uh, and in the North who strongly opposed slavery, came their voice. And I think what kept him out of the presidency was the fact that he was often referred to as godlike Daniel. He had, because the experience of listening to him was almost a religious kind of experience. And he had this voice that was so extraordinary. He could speak to crowds of tens of thousands of people who would claim, even the people in the far back, would claim that they understood every word that he uttered. 
And because he had this big booming voice, they saw it as the voice of God. Now, people could admire him for that, but they weren't quite sure they wanted God as their president. <laughs> and while he was godlike in his in his speaking ability, he was not so godlike in his personal life. And he was he, as you alluded to earlier, he was always in debt. He was always living far beyond his means. He took money from people who had business before the government, which looks like it might be at least it, it had the appearance of impropriety, whether it was an outright bribe or not. He was a womanizer. He drank to excess. For all those reasons, Webster was cons- was often the subject of scandal and rumor. And, and of course, because he was so closely associated with the, the opposition to slavery, he didn't have much support from the South. Webster came to prominence at a time where factions were starting to, political factions were really starting to emerge. Uh, Where was Daniel Webster in the panoply of these factions? Where did his philosophy and his political success, where is it placed? This is going to sound strange. He wasn't closely associated with any specific faction. He was very much a consensus builder. He was always in the middle. But on the issues of slavery, he was a moderate in his op- he was op- opposed to slavery, but he was willing to accept the fact that the Constitution protected the right of the Southern states to keep slavery. And so he was he was a moderate figure. He was he believed strongly in business and commerce and trade. And he very much favored those kinds of interests. He also believed in the importance of developing the West and of infrastructure. And so he and Henry Clay were natural allies on that issue of protecting infrastructure and building up the West, which was not always popular in New England. And later in his political life, he favored tariffs because New England became a center of of industry and these young industries needed tariffs for protection. And so he began to shift his position and he, but his, uh, he was always in some tension about that. He wasn't really very entirely comfortable with building up tariffs and tariffs, of course, were very unpopular in the South, but really the, the issues that he was most closely identified with was his opposition to slavery and his support for the union. And he was willing to compromise and to do whatever was necessary to preserve the union. Oh, which is why the relationship between Clay, uh, who represented the West, and Webster, who represented the North, and J- and John C. Calhoun, who represented the South, was such an important relationship in trying to hold the Union together. You 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 alluded to geography. Let's talk about it a little bit because it comes through in your book. These competing New England industry needs tariffs for protection. Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, calls it the tariff of abominations. And some people have latched on to tariffs as the explanation for the Civil War. I'll give you a few minutes to conjure up the wrath of yourself when you take that on here in a second, because it's absurd, but that's what folks say. But geography, the West, the Mexican War, you know, even back to the Louisiana Purchase, what's it, 1803, I think, 1804. Uh, there are theories of history, Frederick Jackson Turner, that's the frontier is what is defines the United States. It defines who we are as Americans, that push to the Pacific Ocean. How did this push affect American history in the time period of your book, this geographic change where millions of square miles are added to the original 13 colonies. That's really like a whole course in history. <laughs> Let me try to. You're an attorney. You can go from big words to smaller ones sure. and make us all understand. Sure. So what you have at the time, much like what we see in America today, is we see a division between the rural parts of the country and the more urbanized parts of the country. And this has much to do with slavery, of course, because slavery had the effect of discouraging industrialization in the South. 
and maintaining a kind of uh, agrarian economy. Much of what Jefferson talks about, his sort of myth of the young farmer, is really about maintaining this kind of small local agrarian economy. What and that is what John C. Calhoun represents. What Webster represents is the desire to industrialize, to develop cities and finance and wealth, and to try to build up the economy of the country and the power of the country as a world power. And uh, he and Clay both share this interest in infrastructure. The issues that divide the country geographically have to do with things like how much the federal government should build up infrastructure, how much the federal government uh, and the national bank should engage in economic intervention, should intervene in the economy, should try to build up the economy. Tariffs are an issue because on the one hand, tariffs help to protect the infant industries in the North. On the other hand, the rural parts of the country, primarily in the South, are exporting goods that basically they're selling their goods at low prices to the, the Europeans or to the North to be then manufactured and processed into something. And then they're going to buy back those manufacturers at higher prices because of the tariffs. And so tariffs were, in, in, the, words of, in the words of John C. Calhoun, tariffs were impoverishing the South. Um, they were taking money out of the South to help to subsidize the North. And um, so these issues of infrastructure, tariffs, and slavery really defines the political um, tensions of that particular point in time. Uh, Go ahead, please. Yeah. And the other sort of tension is that the North is has lots of immigration from Europe, mostly Irish immigrants. And there are tensions over um, uh, concerns about religion and because the Protestant uh, religions in the Northeast feel threatened by the influx of Catholics from Europe. And there are issues about the opening up the West because what's happening is that the West offers people great opportunities for new wealth, for development, for farming and manufacturing, all kinds of things. And workers are leaving the Northeast and moving to places like Indiana to pursue a new life for themselves. And that means that the labor pool in the Northeast is shrinking and the industrialists who need more workers don't want to open up the West quite so fast because it's draining the labor pool. And so these kinds of issues all work in ways that divide the country up sectionally uh, and create sectional tensions. And those three men, Calhoun, Clay, and Webster, have to negotiate that. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is author, historian, professor. Joel Richard Paul, we are discussing his book, Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. Uh, Professor, is there a particular Hoosier leader and or legend you admire most? Boy, you really put me on the spot there, didn't you? The Hoosier in my book would be uh, William Henry Harrison, uh, who was one of the early governors of Indiana. I, I can't remember if he was the first governor or the John second. Jennings was the first, I think. First yeah. I think. Uh, and Harrison, I think, had the makings of a, being a great president. He recognized, as did Webster, the problems of the slaveocracy and the need to try to contain the spread of slavery and to try to find ways to ameliorate it, to, to, to transition to something different. And I think that if he had lived, he might have been a great president. But unfortunately, 
unfortunately, um, he was not a great president because he died uh, very soon after a month into, in his administration. And he left us with what would have previously considered one of the worst presidents, but the, that list has gotten bigger lately, and that is John Tyler. Uh, who who was became a member of the House of Representatives for the Confederate States of America. Yes, that's right. And uh, who also has a living grandson as we record this podcast. He has a, a, living, grandson. a living grandson. Oh, I see. Two, one of them just died a few years ago. Yes. I, I was afraid you were going to tell me you were his living grandson. <laughs> I, was, I thought, what else have I done wrong so far? In if, this? If I thought it could help the podcast, I'd do it. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about some other folks who come into your book. And yeah. I'm going to start with someone we were laughing about before the podcast, and that is Old Hickory, Andrew Jackson, for decades, starting, I think, with uh, Arthur Schlesinger's ratings in the early 60s, 1960s, Jackson was thought to be in the top 10 easily among our presidents. Uh, he has taken a beating historically in the last generation or so. You're not a fan. How did you weave Jackson into your narrative with, because you don't, you don't praise him. You don't spend a, a thousand pages denigrating him, but I do think that he got one thing and that's the nullification crisis, which happens in the early 1830s. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's, that is absolutely correct. Yeah. Andrew Jackson is a man who gets elected on a wave of rural, primarily Southern discontent. He is a large slaveholder. He appeals to people because he has a reputation as, as an Indian fighter. He has a reputation for a fierce temper. He's often a violent man, and he represents a strong kind of autocratic leader. And he becomes president. He, he promises as president that he's going to... <clears throat> Uh, clean out the Augean stables, by which he means to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. And he's determined to carry this out. And what he does is, first of all, he fires hundreds of perfectly innocent, meeting, competent, honest Washington bureaucrats because he hates the bureaucracy and hires a bunch of less competent, often corrupt people to replace them. He fills his cabinet with unbelievable mediocrities who he has to end up firing because they're so terrible. He recognizes that himself, but they're all yes men. And a, a lot of his administration is basically devoted to arguing in his first two years, is arguing over the uh, sexual exploits of one of his cabinet members and his cabinet member's wife. He himself is mired in a sex scandal. He, he claims that without any basis, in fact, he claims that he was denied the presidency in uh, four years earlier because of a corrupt bargain that never took place between Henry C. Henry Calhoun and Henry Clay and John Quincy I'm sorry, Adams. Henry Clay, Henry sorry. Clay, thank you. <laughs> Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. And his whole administration, he never he basically ignores constitutional norms, all of the norms of his office. He's extremely mean-spirited towards his adversaries. His principal accomplishments in the first four years are the Indian Removal Act, aimed at basically destroying the tribal nations and trying to abolish the National Bank, which creates enormous economic problems for the country and destabilizes the currency. And you were correct that his one sort of great moment is the nullification crisis where he stares down South Carolina. When South Carolina threatens to secede from the country and, and to nullify federal tariff. And he does so um, basically um, because Webster convinces him <laughs> that this is the right way to go. It, it's Webster who really helps Andrew Jackson become a great president. And Jackson 
he appoints as his vice president, John C. Calhoun. And John C. Calhoun turns around and stabs Jackson in the back and basically supports the secession from the United States, which is just uh, almost unthinkable. Uh, Resigns from the presidency so that he can fight it out in the Senate and and be the spokesman for the South. I'm going to ask you about Calhoun next because there is a time, there is a period in antebellum America, and maybe this is more political than it is economic, where slavery transforms from this peculiar institution into a positive good. Yeah. Right. Calhoun is a big part of that. Talk about that, please, if you take a few minutes. Sure, sure, sure. Before I, I attack John C. Calhoun, let me just say this about <laughs> the subject you're talking about. Up until probably the 1830s, 1840s, something around there, most Southern leaders were relatively, uh, had a view that slavery was, was an evil, but it was a necessary evil, and that ultimately slavery would evaporate on its own. They didn't think of slavery as a positive good. They thought of it as something that they were they had inherited from the British, and that it was really the British fault, and that wasn't their fault. And after all, what are you going to do with these people? You I'm just going to say, what are you going to do with them if you end slavery? They're going to walk right. among us? How are you going to, how are they going to survive? How would they support themselves? And, and you're going to ship them all back to Africa. That was the attitude of the Southerners at that point in time. The Northern abolitionists really began to threaten the South in ways that fed into a kind of fantastic fear that Southerners had that someday that there would be a revolution that the enslaved African Americans would ultimately overthrow the, the slaveocracy and they would kill them in their sleep. And this was not an entirely a fantasy because uh, that's what happened in Haiti. There had, been a, uh, there had been a slave revolt in Haiti and the Africans had been able to free themselves to gain emancipation. And there were some evidence of occasional slave revolts that occurred, and certainly there were slaves that had escaped slavery. And so white Southerners, in reaction to the abolitionists and the threat of the abolitionists represented and people like John Brown, more and more adamant that slavery was a positive good, that it was actually, that it was in the Bible, that it was God's will, that this was something that God had sanctioned, that they were doing Africans a favor. This nonsense became kind of part of the sort of Southern mindset before the Civil War. And John C. Calhoun is the guy who really articulates that. And John C. Calhoun has a very interesting critique that he he writes about the economy of the South in comparison to the economy of the North. And bizarrely, he anticipates Karl Marx He writes this treatise where he says that the white workers in the North, that he says, first of all, that that there's always going to be an underclass. There's always going to be a group of people who are going to be suppressed. And the white workers in the North are worse off than the Africans are in the South. And that what makes white men equal is the enslavement of black men. That white men are only equal because we have we have enslaved and oppressed black people. That's John C. Calhoun's analysis. So that the real equality in America occurs in the South, not in the North. In Calhoun's view, and in Lincoln's view, the equality of to say men for the time period is the ability to reap the fruits of one's own labor. And he said that. I think it was one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates where Lincoln says, I don't think that the slave is my equal and various things, but when it comes to, I'm butchering this quote, but I, I'm going to get it B plus level accurate. But when it comes to the the fruits of their labor, they are the equal of Judge Douglas, myself, or anyone else. Where Whereas the North really 
embraced work. In the Civil War, you had Southerners who wouldn't dig trenches because they never dug trenches or never dug anything because that's what slaves did or that's what the inferior people did. But this transfer of attitude towards it, it's going to wither away on the vine. Now, and I want to ask you about the cotton gin very quickly. Now, because of technology and other things, it's become immensely profitable and we just don't know what to do with it. So they're making, they're trying to make really a, a, a perverse virtue out of necessity in the South. And in fairness to Southerners, we're in a moment in our history where we're canceling a lot of folks who are slaveholders. And I think 14 of the first 16 presidents of the United States were slaveholders, or 13 of 16. And the majority of the Supreme Court were slaveholders. And the reason so many people were slaveholders was because there were there was no free labor market. You couldn't hire a white person or a black person to do the job. You only had slaves to do the job. And if you were going to hire a white person, what would you pay them? The the since the enslaved person received no wages, what would be the competing wage of a white person who or a black person who could do it? Who was free? It, it was inevitable that Southern leaders, that the people who had means, would become slaveholders. But to get to your point about Lincoln, one of the things that's interesting to me is that we think of Lincoln as being, of course, one of our greatest presidents, and rightly, and as also as a great orator. But in actuality, in the period right up until about 1856, Lincoln was a nobody. He was well-known locally. He was respected locally as, as, a, as, a, as an honest and intelligent man and, and a very successful corporate lawyer. But he was not a guy who had held a lot of political offices. He was a one-term member of Congress. He lived in the shadow of Daniel Webster. He said that Daniel Webster was his model. And that when during his one term in Congress, he uh, was invited to join Webster had a brunch, Saturday brunch club. And Lincoln loved the fact that he could be close to his hero because he had admired Webster for decades before that. And he tried to model his speeches on Webster's speeches. In fact, some of the greatest lines that Lincoln uttered were actually lifted from Webster. And interestingly, he didn't even have to say that they were lifted from Webster because everybody was so familiar with those lines. For example, when Lincoln says we're a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, he doesn't have to say, oh, and by the way, I'm quoting Daniel Webster, because everyone in that audience knew those were Daniel Webster's words that he was using. And no one resented him for that because Webster was the touchstone. Webster was the guy who had, he was the Shakespeare of his day. And Webster's thinking about slavery and his thinking about the Union very much shaped Lincoln's thinking. We are going to have a return appearance uh, by Edward Acorn, who wrote a terrific book recently on the 1860 Republican Convention in Chicago, but had previously written a book titled Every Drop of Blood that focuses on Lincoln's second inaugural address. The book is phenomenal. I never looked at it that way. I don't know, Professor Paul, if you've read it or are familiar with it, but it's the way he breaks down the relationship between Lincoln's words, the words of the people of his generation in the Old Testament is something I'd never read before. It's terrific. We know what Lincoln thought of Webster. So for a, we have a few minutes left. We can do a counterfactual here. What would Webster have thought of Lincoln's presidency? Say Webster lives to be lives to 1870. How do you think Webster would have judged Abraham Lincoln? Well, I, Webster liked Lincoln on a, on a personal level. Lincoln was very charming and told great stories, and Webster appreciated that. I think Webster would have seen Lincoln as the embodiment of what Webster believed in for the country, and he would have admired Lincoln greatly. I'm not sure that Webster would have gone as far as Lincoln in signing the Emancipation Proclamation during the war, 
only because uh, Webster felt that the Constitution had protected slavery in the Southern states. But he certainly would have been uh, a very a, a very strong supporter of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and a believer that, the, that by amending the Constitution, you could abolish slavery and, and finally put it to rest. Is Webster's summation, articulation of American nationalism, is it a gift to us in 2023? Was it a gift to Americans in the 19th century? I, I think that the relevance of this book today, in my view, and the relevance of Webster's story is this, that Webster believed that you had to work towards the center. You had to build consensus. And he believed that what defined us as Americans was our constitution, that it didn't matter what our race was or our faith or what part of the country we came from. And we're living in a time, much like Webster's, where we're deeply polarized about the questions of, of who's what kind of country this is. Is this just a country, as Jackson believed, that this is a country basically for white Europeans who are presumptively Christian? Or is this a country that is really open to everyone, in which we're all equal, in which we all have a role to play and a contribution to make? Webster recognized the importance of the Constitution in defining us all as Americans. And that is an idea which I think uh, has come under threat recently, and that there are many people in this country who no longer seem to believe that, who falsely and incorrectly believe that our country is basically for white Christians only. And that never was what our founding fathers thought. It was never what Washington or Jefferson or Adams or Franklin or uh, any of them thought. It is an idea which I think has has been very toxic element uh, in our body politic and we have to get back to this idea of constitutional nationalism. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. I, I could go on for another hour on this topic because we've just scratched the surface. We could have talked. I didn't ask you again about the cotton gin, but that's okay. We had uh, David and Jeannie Heidler on the podcast a couple of years ago talking about Jackson and the rise of newspapers and that sort of thing, which is big, especially when it comes to printing speeches, as you were mentioning earlier, but we won't keep the professor all night. So the five questions, what was your first job? My first job was scooping ice cream at a Baskin Robbins. It lasted less than a week. I lost the job because I was terrible at making change, which in those days you had to do in your head. And because I kept making the wrong desserts for people would order or something like a, you know, a root beer float with vanilla ice cream and I'd put chocolate in it instead of vanilla and people didn't like that. And so the manager of the store had to bring home all the desserts that I ruined. And he decided he had enough of me. <laughs> so I decided to become a law professor instead. <clears throat> Second question. What was your first concert? My first concert was Leonard Bernstein's, when Leonard Bernstein used to do a series in New York of the Philharmonic for children, the children's concert. And I used to go to those. I'm from New York. You can look up, and there's probably more than one, but I've watched a particular performance of his Rhapsody in Blue huh. on YouTube. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Like, the genius of one man. Third question. This may be a tough one, but if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Besides my own? No. <laughs> you could say without precedent. Actually, I, I, if yeah, if you wanted to read one of my one of my books, uh, my first book uh, in this series uh, on the Re American Revolution, Unlikely Allies is the true story of how a merchant, a playwright, and uh, a cross-dressing French spy saved the American Revolution. And it's a wild story. And I love that book. It's in front of my first child. And I, I've turned that book into a musical. If you want to read something which is maybe a, a lighter book for summer reading, Unlikely Allies is, is, a great, is great fun to read. And it's also a true story about the American Revolution. 
This may be even a tougher question. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? And I'm going to say, I'm going to give you Webster's second reply to Hain. That's a freebie. So choose something other than that. Wow. I, I think hearing John Marshall's deliver his opinion in Marbury versus Madison, I think that was the moment when the supremacy of the Supreme Court was established and when the Constitution was really made the supreme law of our land. Uh, so as a constitutional law professor, I, I think that's where I most want to be. Mr. Chris Spangle, brand new father of about two weeks, he was just talking about Marbury versus Madison before we started the podcast. I'll make sure that he gets a question in after the podcast is over. That's a great answer because that decision changed everything. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record to talk about anything you want, whom would you choose? Oh, gosh. Uh, I only get to choose one person who's living today. That's really a hard question. I'm sure your students would just be brokenhearted at these hard questions I'm asking you. <laughs> I can think of a number of people who are dead who I would love to have, sure. have dinner with. But uh, of people who are living today, I think possibly the playwright Tom Stoppard. I think that would be the person I would most want to meet. Tom Stoppard is a just a phenomenal playwright, and his command of language and his sense of humor is so exceptional. And I really just, I'd love to meet him. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Joel Richard Paul, author of several books, but we discussed Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. It's received more positive reviews than I can count. It's a terrific narrative, a terrific study of what I think is the most underrated time period in history, and that is between all the conflicts, compromises, and personalities that led to the American Civil War. Professor Paul, thank you so much. It was an honor to talk to you. Grateful for your time, and please keep writing. Oh, Robert, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.